This is the Black Hole Podcast with host Ryan Millsap. With a vision of how real estate could turn into movies and how movies could turn into money, Millsap set out to build the state's largest film complex. After checking that box, Millsap returned to his entrepreneurial roots, where real estate ventures, entertainment opportunities, nonprofit support, and golf course business deals rule the day. What's next for Ryan Millsap? Listen up, and you'll find out. Today on the podcast, I'm hosting a man I admire, a man I call a friend, a man who inspires me, Mr. Garrett Gravison. His book, 10 Seconds of Insane Courage, is a bestseller, and it's no wonder why. In the book, Gravison explores eight fear factors that limit our lives. He shows us how to push through each one to lead a life of adventure, purpose, and passion. Garrett has traveled to every country in the world, all 197 of them. He lives to study human behavior and to explore the unknown. His goal? Capture lessons of different cultures that focus on fear and courage, apply them to people, organizations, and companies, and propel happiness and success. Always wearing a smile and often a bow tie, usually with a suit too, Garrett Gravison is an unparalleled inspiration. Here's his motto, unlock courage, unleash potential. Let's welcome my friend, Garrett Gravison. Today on the podcast, we're welcoming my friend, Garrett Gravison. Garrett, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. So Garrett and I uh, met years ago and became fast friends. Last summer, we actually were in Italy together celebrating his completion of visiting every country in the entire world, 197. Correct. <laughs> I know you've told the story, you know, many times, but give me the the brief version of what inspired that, you know, how many years it took you to do it. Um, tell me some of that story. Yeah. So 197, that's a lot. I'm not sure if I could do 197 of anything at this point in my life. So push-ups, uh, you know, running that many miles, but, but go into that many countries, if you think about it, I mean, there's 54 countries in Africa alone, right? So that's just more than the United States countries compared to states. So uh, it was a crazy goal, but the the inciting incident, I think the moment that sparked everything um, was with my dad. And so I love my family. I come from a great mom. Uh, parents uh, got divorced when I was really young, but I still think they both loved each other throughout the whole thing. And uh, but my dad always really encouraged me um, to really follow whatever it was, you know, whether it was something entrepreneurial or, or in this case, travel. Um, but I always wanted to travel with my dad. And so my dad was my hero in life. And I said, you know, let's do a father-son trip together. And it just wasn't the right time and it never happened. I said, that's all right. So I kind of traveled a bit more. And then on his 60th birthday, I said, hey, no more excuses. You're 60, we got to do a father-son trip. And it didn't happen. And so finally, he retired at 62. And I was like, now we literally have no more excuses. So after working 40 years, we didn't come from much money at all. He sold insurance his entire life. So 40 years of work, he finally retires at 62. And after retiring, 30 days later, he finds out he has stage four cancer and a year left to live. And it was 
crushing. And uh, I was an entrepreneur. I'd been running a company. And I said, you know, you get one mom and one dad. And if we're even lucky enough to have a relationship with them, like that's what's most important. And so I took time off. I was this caretaker. I was with him. He went through nine rounds of chemo, 10 rounds of radiation. I was just beating up his body. And I said, you know what, dad, instead of going through that last round of, of chemo, why don't we say screw it? And let's do that father-son trip we always talked about. He said, you know what? We may not have much time left, but the quality of time that we have is what matters most. And so he ripped off all the things from the hospital. We got him the heck out of there. The doctor said this is a terrible idea, but it was the best idea that we had. And so the closest place we could find that was a foreign country that would be cool was Cuba. So, you know, an hour outside of Miami, you know, it's uh, 90, I say it's 90 miles away, but about 50 years apart from what we experience here in the U.S. My dad was a car guy growing up. He never had enough money to get a cool car, but he always loved cars. And if you know a little bit about Cuba, they have the old like 1960s cars, like the classic ones. And so I got him down there. It was our father-son moment that we had always dreamed about. I remember getting him a cherry red classic convertible from the 60s. We got him one of those straw hats that you see in the photos. And we found some of the biggest, fattest Cuban cigars possible. (laughs) So my dad, who's in his final days uh, struggling with cancer, we smoked so many Cuban cigars, had the greatest experience ever. And uh, in that moment, I just asked my dad for advice. And I said, you know, we may not have that much time left together. What advice would you give me? He's like, my only advice would be this. Find one thing you'd be insanely proud of doing and do it now. And at that point, I traveled to a lot of countries. I didn't know how many countries there were in the world. I didn't know if there were 197. Certainly, I did not know that. But I said, it would be interesting to take my dad's legacy and this idea of doing things now. I call it these 10 seconds of insane courage and trying to go for it, to try to visit every country in the world and spread that message to all corners of earth, all seven continents, every single place, uh, and honor my dad and that message of, of doing something that you'd be insanely proud of and doing it now. That was the moment that sparked it all. And, uh, and then my dad unfortunately passed away a few weeks later, but we got in that final first father-son trip and it was probably one of my proudest moments in life. <clears throat> how, how many years ago was that? So that was eight years ago. Okay. And uh, how many countries do you think you've covered now in, in those eight years? So over a hundred for sure. Okay. So, so I, you were, you were only, well, you were under a hundred, but you were close to a hundred. Correct. Correct. So I started 21 years ago. So if you think about a big singular goal, it takes time, right? With anything, you know, you're building a company, you're building, you know, a strategy. I mean, but especially if you go for one of these singular type goals, I started uh, when I was 21 uh, funny enough, the girl in the Guinness Book of World Records, the youngest to do it, finished at 21. I'd not even started by 21. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter how old you are, anything's possible. I started at 21, knocked off a few countries at a time, but, uh, but I was probably around the 80 uh, or 90 mark. So I still had 100 to go when that happened eight years ago. And over the last eight years, I just said, we're going into fifth gear, we're going to floor this thing, and it's a singular goal and we're going to make it happen. What kind of documentation do you need for each country yep, so to have an official? Yep, there's typically four things uh, that the Guinness Book or a lot of the you know, official websites look for. So a recognizable photo. So you're in Egypt, there's the pyramids. You're in Italy, there's the Colosseum. You know? uh, so that's one. A passport stamp. But as we know, in Europe, they don't stamp your passport. In Africa, they typically do. Um, you can have a credit card receipt. 
So a lot of people, uh, especially if you're really trying to do the official, you can't just do a layover. You can't just stop in an airport and then keep going. You got to get outside the airport. And then the other thing is, is physically doing something outside of an airport um, or having a, a meaningful cultural, you know, event or something take place. So that can be a lunch, a dinner, that can be, you know, a tour, a guide, but, but getting out of the airport and actually doing something meaningful. How many people are in the Guinness Book right now that are still alive? So they, they say there's 300 people in human history that have ever done it. That's it? 300? That's it. In Three, all of human history? In all of human history. Now, how many of those from back in the, you know, Columbus days can prove it? I have no idea. But, but the official mark is 300 uh, when, when I said it uh, last summer. Yeah. What about when um, everything was Pangea? <laughs> <laughs> they were crossing left and right. They had so many records broken. <laughs> That's when the Guinness Book first started back in Pangea. <laughs> yeah, before there were any any borders. When anything, everything was one. Exactly. I've I've I visited the entire planet <laughs> in, in one walking in tour. In one walking tour. <laughs> Psychologically, tell me some of the things from from. Let's, let's start with like when you're, you're in Cuba with your dad, psychologically, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned in those eight years, traveling to over a hundred countries in eight years? Yeah. So one, it's difficult and two, it's draining. Uh, it's not easy. And, and anything worthwhile in life is, is going to be difficult and, and oftentimes draining. Uh, but I think for me, the flip side of that is, is just where you find joy in life. You know, listen, I grew up in Atlanta. I'm, I'm, you know, from, you know, the U.S. And it's typically, you know, bank accounts and big budgets and bottle service and beautiful women. And that's a lot of bees in a row. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but overseas, you find that, you know, it tends to be just music and dancing and time with friends and family and a simple meal and a great conversation that lasts so long, you know, and I think the Europeans, they do it right. They just, you know, their out of office email is like, you know, once you hit the summer, it's like, see you in September. <laughs> like You can't get in touch with us because we're just living this like, you know, joy de vivre where it's like, we're drinking wine for four hours in the afternoon. And then we're going to go sit out in the sun and have a conversation with our kids. Like that's life, you know, and to see that, but it took me getting out of my comfort zone, right? So getting to Cuba, where everyone has, you know, two or three jobs. You have the official government job. Everyone's an entrepreneur. And they say everyone's a mechanic because all the cars break down, right? <laughs> but, but what do they do? They, they sing music. They drink mojitos. They dance in the streets. And it's like, golly, like just looking at life and how lovely it can be, even when you don't have uh, the financial things that we look at uh, here. And I'm, I'm guilty as charged. Listen, like I'm an entrepreneur. I love making money. I love building business. Uh, but it is interesting to see around the world how people live. Psychologically for somebody though, who is extroverted as you are, yeah, right. Who loves people as much as you do, <laughs> loves parties and, you know, uh, excitement as much as you do. What's the draining part about the traveling for somebody like you? Yeah, I think it's just that you you never get to settle in and make quality friendships, right? So uh, my wife, you know, she would love to stay in a place for a month. 
I'm, you know, four days in onto the next place, four days in onto the next place. I'm hitting two countries a week. I mean, I did a book tour where we did 52 countries in 52 weeks. I would have gotten divorced within the first week of that. Like she hates that, right? <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a lot more calming when you can sit in a place and enjoy it. Um, but, you know, if you could stay in a country for a year, that'd be amazing. I don't, I didn't have 197 years to do this, you know? Uh, and I was like, you know, I want to do this and, and try to get a glimpse of, of learnings and, and places. But it is draining just going so fast, so quick to so many of these countries that most people, you'd never consider, I'm planning a vacation, I'm going to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Like that's just not on people's list, right? Or Heart of darkness. Yeah, like straight down the Congo <laughs> River. Or it's like, I'm going to the pyramids, but there's also, you know, older pyramids that are larger in Sudan, right? The Meroe pyramids, but you don't think to go to Sudan. And then to get there, you're going to Khartoum and then it's a little bit dangerous. And then you're going, you know, straight to the pyramids, like on, you know, you're just trusting people. And it just, it's, it can be draining doing that over and over. And I did it straight for almost a decade, nonstop. Because it didn't feel as relational. It was more like there was, there was a work element. There was a commitment element of, a, of just getting to the goal, banging it out. And so there, there was a lot of work relative to, you know, you're trying to get to Iraq. Ex or, exactly. And the great thing is once, you know, if you have a singular goal, so the 197 or a marathon or whatever, if you run a marathon and you finish it, you can always go back and run the great routes or the great cities or the great places that you love, that you love, right? And I think the beauty of it was I had that goal that I wanted to see every place, meet every person, soak in every experience so that I could bring that back to a company, a job, a brand, a next venture, um, and have, have connections in every country in the world. But now I can go back to the places and spend more time in the places, you know, that are the most unique or, or enjoyable. Tell me the scariest story. Like, what was what was the the most hair raising, you know, death defying country to try to break into? Yeah, I had to get airlifted out of Afghanistan. <laughs> I like this. This so, sounds like a good story. Yeah, and so uh, so I was in Afghanistan. The horrible idea. The day of the presidential election, so Trump Biden back in the day, uh, and because neither uh, day of the U.S. presidential the day of the U.S. presidential election, because both presidents said we're going to remove troops, different strategies for each one, regardless of your you know presidential politics, and the Taliban knew it, so the Taliban is just waiting to come in and take over Kabul. So I'm in Kabul at that moment. I'm with 10 people from around the world, all chasing this 197, and we know that once the Taliban comes in, Afghanistan's no longer an option at least for the foreseeable future. So like right now, if somebody was doing, trying to do 197, I Afghanistan mean, would be like yeah, redlined. You just, yeah. how do, I don't even know how to get into Afghanistan. North Korea, you can't get into right now. Turkmenistan, you can't get into right now. So it is a chess game trying to get to 197. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right, well, guns blazing, we're going in and we're in Kabul. Day we land, there was a suicide bombing at the main university. Second day, there's a street bombing and we're in Kabul. We're the only tourists there. There's 10 of us. And so- All Americans? All, so I was the only American. So if this goes sideways, I'm the first one that, that really- You're gonna get burned in effigy. Oh, exactly. And so we said, we've got to get out of Kabul. Uh, it's, the, it's the capital, but it's also the most dangerous city. So we fly 
the worst airline, if you look it up, in the world with the most plane crashes, because it's like 20-year-old kids flying planes, is called Cam Air, K-A-M. It's worse than, worse than Aerofly in Russia? <laughs> yeah, worse than Spirit. Worse than <laughs> 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 Sorry, sorry, Spirit Airlines, folks. Uh, it's a good airline. I have flown Spirit quite a bit. But uh, long story short, Cam Airlines, uh, or Cam Air, is the uh, national carrier in Afghanistan. So he said, we can either go overland uh, to get out of here, or we go to fly on Cam Air. Luckily, took Cam Air, got out of uh, Kabul. And then when we landed in Bamiyan outside, uh, we knew we had to get back to Kabul and then get out of the country. Cam Airlines shut down. So there's no way back. So you're basically, you know, dead man walking, obviously, if you take overland back because you're going to get kidnapped by the Taliban. It's like, these are just horrible options. What do we do? So... Uh, I actually have a phone number in my phone. I'm not going to say it because it's a podcast, but I put it in as uh, a friend of mine said, write this number down if things go sideways. And I put it in as Afghanistan 911. <laughs> 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 I'm like, well, I guess I'm calling and I don't know who's on the other end of the You didn't line. know. I your did friend gave know. me this number and said, yeah. case of emergency, right. break glass. Right, exactly. So I said, all right, team. So I'm the only American. So I'm definitely calling this number. The other nine of you, like you're either coming with me or not. I'm not leaving you guys. I'm I'm giving everyone the opportunity to come with me. And they said, Garrett, like, we trust you. We like you. We know you. And I'm like, yeah, you've known me for about four days in Afghanistan. <laughs> are you willing to bet your life on me? And they're like, we are. And so I called this number and they're like, wait, you're an American in Afghanistan right now. And I said, yes. They said, uh, we, can, we can get you out of the country. And I said, I'm not leaving without my friends. And they said, how many people are you with? And I said, nine of us. They're like, there's nine tourists in Afghanistan the day of the US presidential election. They said, meet us at this airfield. It's 40 minutes away from your, your drop location. Bring passports and we'll escort you guys out of the country. And so in that moment, it was like, I don't know who's gonna pick us up. I don't know what this airfield is. I don't, I'm, and I'm not asking any questions, obviously. Obviously. And so... Uh, Two carriers came, got us, got all of us out. Okay, so wait, how did you how did you get the forty minutes? You, you had taxis or whatever, you just taxis. Yeah, there was uh, at, at the location we were staying at. We had two private drivers. Okay, so two private drivers. You get to an airfield. Is it a big airport? Small no, airport? Very small airport. So, very small uh, airport. Yeah, uh, like like where you pull up and there's nobody. There's no flights. Yeah, there's no commercial. It's like a, it's like a private airport. Private airport used for military. Yeah. Okay, and so but are there military planes already there? Military planes were not there when we got there. So. Two, mil two planes arrived uh, to get us. What kind of planes? Like Small, uh, they sat six people each. Oh, so they, they, were they gray, like military planes, or did they look like civilian planes? They looked like civilian planes, yeah. Okay, so they, this is all incognito. Yeah, this is all... These like, are like Cessna caravans or correct, something. Correct, 100%. Okay. Yeah. So if, you know, think Tim Kennedy, you know, scars and stripes comes in to, you know, save the day, and, you know, these places, I, it was probably some, some of his friend's planes or some plane that got us and then got us back to Kabul, and then got us to Pakistan. I'm like, <laughs> but so these two planes come flying in. Yep. Any who's on the plane besides these some bush pilots? J just pilots. Yeah. And the pilots don't say anything really. They just like get on the plane. Yep. Get on the plane. They verify our passports, verify our identity. So two forms of identity. Uh, and there were nine of us. And how long are they on the ground? From the from the time they yep, land. Yep. To the time you guys take off, how long do you think those those were wheels down? Less than five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. So was, they came rolling in. Yep. They checked passports. Everybody's on. Yep. We're out. And 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 I don't know what would have happened. There was no other option. I mean, this was our only option because going overland 
it's just Taliban and it's roads and it's... But you flew into the country. Flew into the country in Kabul, but most people just stay in Kabul, right? Why did you leave Kabul? Well, because there were so many street bombings. There was a, you know, it was just bombing after bombing. But why didn't you just go get on a plane in Kabul? Were they, had they shut down planes back out of the country? No, they hadn't shut it down. We we did have a plane flight that was leaving, uh, but we were supposed to be there for a week. And so after two days in Kabul, we're like, where do we go? What do we do? Because we were going to go to the markets. We yeah. were going to go you know, to the universities. We were going to, it was a proper cultural tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were like, this is just- We got to get out of we here. We got to get out of here. And so, so for whatever reason, you determined that it was impossible to go back to the Kabul airport and just take a commercial flight without some risk of being identified. Correct. Yeah. In that moment. In that moment. And we said, well, we've already got a flight. Uh, could we get out of Kabul, go to another city? stay safe for a while, keep our heads down and, uh, and then come back and then get out. Got it. So you took a flight, not out of the country, just to another place that wasn't Kabul because Kabul felt like it was the most, the yeah. hot zone. Exactly. 100%. And so, so these planes fly into this tiny airstrip somewhere. Yep. Pick you up. Like in, how long are you on the plane to get out of there? Oh, it, uh, the flight back to Kabul was probably 40 minutes. Okay, so you fly these little planes. Yep, yep, little plane. Back to Kabul. Back to Kabul. And then what do you, What happens? And so they dropped us off at a, at a, not the international Kabul airport, like out of a side uh, airport in Kabul. And then we had two private drivers and they took us. We actually spent the night in Kabul that night and then got flights out the next morning. So you g- did get back on some international flight. International flight. flight. Uh, that went to uh, Pakistan. Pakistan. Yeah. And did you, were they worried at all about you guys getting through security? No, I mean, their job was to get it, like to get us out of wherever you were. Where we they were, were just like, why were you, why are you out here in the country? Correct. Which no one should be. And we're like, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> well, it's easy. I mean, th- think about, think about how much you've learned about the difference between the security you feel as an American right. running around the United States yeah. versus as not just an American, but anybody running around most of these other countries. How do you compare that? Like, you know, when people talk about like the, the U S being violent or the U S being unsafe, how do you respond to that as somebody who has been unsafe in many other countries? Yeah. So I'll, I'll put a, a comma on that. I've, I've, been, I've certainly been unsafe and, you know, you're talking about Libya, Yemen, North mm-hmm. Korea, Afghanistan. These are some hot zones, right? But I would say for the majority of places, like would I go out in downtown Atlanta at 2 a.m.? Never, right? Like what I, I mean, you know, they're, they're just places where if you're smart, you keep your head up, you know, you, you have some wits about you. Uh, most places, I mean, 95% of places are, are pretty safe. And I mean, I've gone through, you know, obvious, well, every country, but you know, from Sierra Leone, where you think of Blood Diamond and the DiCaprio movie and all the way up to Senegal, there's, you know, about a, a nine, 10 country trek across West Africa that most travelers would say is the, the riskiest, most dangerous, most difficult because it's just land borders and it's just, you know, it's, it's very difficult. I never felt unsafe. Now, you know, people would you know ask for this or require that, or there's all this, you know, back and forth. Sure, that's just part of the, part of the game, part of the territory. But as far as you know, safety and security, I, I think you can feel safe anywhere. Like I've, there were times when I, I mean, even North Korea, right? I mean, it's it felt like you know, part Hunger Games, part you know, uh, what's the Jim Carrey movie where everything, um, 
Uh, it's kind of like they're filming him. The Truman entire, Show. The Truman Show. Exactly, exactly. That's it, how North Korea felt? It felt 100%. felt like the Truman Show. Because when we went, I went with a group of uh, business school students, and, uh, and we actually met with the, uh, one of the ambassadors uh, from, I think it was Sweden or Switzerland. Uh, apologies for not knowing that. But uh, we met, and she, she gave us the advice. She goes, everything you're going to do, uh, everything will be monitored and recorded, including everything in the hotel room that you're at. And so the hotel room, it's interesting. Uh, you can Google this. It's called the, the fifth floor. So there's only one hotel in North Korea that all tourists stay in. One in Pyongyang. And there's no, there's no fifth floor button. So the elevator, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're like, that's interesting. What's the fifth floor? They call it the missing fifth floor because they want to make sure that like everyone is kind of like, you know, you're in the country but you're playing by our rules. So everything's obviously monitored and recorded. It's like, you know. They're not, they're not actually using the fifth floor. No, no, no. It's like, just, it's like when we have buildings that don't have a 13th floor. Right, right, right. And so they're just, you know, making sure and, you know, I'd say monitoring that everything is, is, is above board. It's a symbol. It, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, but there's these story, these little quip stories uh, of, you know, danger, excitement, mystery, but also just beauty and wonder. And, you know, you see some of these you know, seven wonders of the world and there's a, you know, underwater post office in Vanuatu. And you're like, how did that happen? They're like, what does that even mean? Exactly. They're like, well, we can't get tourists because people stop in Australia, stop in New Zealand. How do we bring tourism to a country? And I love innovation. Like I study it, I read about it. It just lights me up. They said, well, we don't have a lot of the same natural resources, you know, these other mega countries, but what if we created a, a one-day stopover in our country and we did something so unique and different that people would want to stop in Vanuatu? So some genius along the way said, what if we create the first underwater post office where you can swim out, dive down, have, have waterproof postcards, ride on them, stick it in a mailbox underneath. And at the end of the day, while we'll people swim down, grab all the postcards and we'll send it out for free around the world to whoever you want. I was like, this is genius. So of course I stop in Vanuatu, go to the underwater post office, dive down and send postcards to all of my friends. I think this is the first time I knew that there was a country called Vanuatu. <laughs> <laughs> Where, it's like somewhere near New Zealand and It's in Australia. the Pacific over near that area. Yeah. Vanuatu. This yes. is like Fiji. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's it's near Fiji, it's near Nauru, it's near all these uh, all these other places. Yeah. What what number of countries could I actually name? I'm not going to do it now. But of 197, I wonder how many of the countries I can actually come up with the names. What do you think? Do you, you think you could you could probably could you do it off the top of your head? Do you think? I, 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 again, I don't want to do it right now, but I'm just like thinking like 197. How many countries have I never even heard of? A lot, probably the majority, right? I mean, you know, if you let's just take Africa, right? Fifty-four countries. You could probably name, you know, from Kenya yeah. down to South Africa, but you go, you know, up the west coast of Africa, it's really hard. I mean, like Guinea, Guinea-Bissau. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the Ivory Coast. You're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I mean, Mauritania. Uh, all these, you know, interesting Algeria, Yemen, Libya, Sudan, South Sudan, right? That's the newest country in the world. Uh, I didn't even know there was a South Sudan. Right. Most How many years has that been? Uh, 2007. So, uh, and shout out, if I could meet one person on the planet, it'd be uh, George Clooney's wife, not George, George Clooney would be amazing, but Amal Clooney, Amal Clooney worked on that case for the United Nations. 
So yeah, there are a lot of differences. They said split the country, you have two different governments. And uh, so South Sudan became uh, a brand new country, the newest country in the world. 2000, and so where was that in your journey? You, you, you had already decided to go to 197. Correct. So you, that you, had to, you added that to the list. Correct, yeah. And how, that's not hard to get into, South Sudan. Uh, so the capital's Juba, J-U-B-A, if you end up on Jeopardy, great answer. <laughs> <laughs> capital of South Sudan is capital Juba. Capital of South Sudan is Juba. Mm-hmm. Uh, but long story short, uh, yeah, you, you, you fly in, you, you go there, you see it. But they have a, when I went, which was probably in 2018 or 19, uh, there's a mandatory cur- uh, curfew across the entire country. So lights out six o'clock, back in your hotels. Mm-hmm. Because they're they're still trying to figure out like you know how to how to run a, a brand new country, um, you know, in the middle of the heart of Africa. Hmm. All right, let me take a step back. So they say like you know people who become psychologists oftentimes have the biggest psychological issues. Yeah, right, because they're they're searching for their own understanding of self, and they, it ends up in a PhD or a PsyD, whatever it is. Similarly, somebody who writes a book about courage, did you feel in your youth like you didn't have courage? Was that a struggle? 100%. I, I've always faced this balance of I've always wanted to be fun, but I was always kind of like book smart nerdy, right? And, and I, I would always look at everyone else. And I was like, I wish I had the courage to just be more myself, have the courage to to really just you know speak up and speak out, to have the courage to you know wear crazy jackets and crazy shoes. I know it's the podcast, but I've got like a crazy jacket on. I, which you always do. Which I always do, which right? I love that about you. Thank you. But you know, yeah, of course. You dress up as much as I dress down. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, but I feel like there's, there's certainly a, there was an, an you know, inferiority complex or a, a, a wishing or a yearning. I just wish I could you know, be more of myself. I've, I don't know where this, this you know, quirky personality comes from, but oftentimes in life, it's like, it gets pushed down, right? Your creativity gets pushed down. The things that you want to do gets pushed down. And discouraged. You're just discouraged. And it's like, I wish. Society, I, society encourages conformity. Right. Not expression. Yeah. And I was like, I wish I could just live a life where I could amplify other people's ideas, like enliven, create, excite, you know, and, and do that not for myself, for other people, other, like I, I, if someone emails, I'll help them write a speech. I'll help them, you know, do a strategy session. I I love strategy. I love creativity and I love, but I love tinkering, right? Like how do you take ideas from other sectors and apply it to yours? How do you take these ideas from other countries and bring it into your business? And, but yeah, there's been a big sense of like, it's taken me so much time to have the courage to believe in myself that maybe I do have something to offer. And I think probably a lot of listeners right now, it's we want to do something, but we're afraid. And I always I talk about there's eight fears in the book, but you know, a lot of it's the fear of the first step. If we don't know something, we don't do something. And so what I tell people is I just, anyone I talk to, I was like, just remind yourself of this. And I say, permission to be awful. Permission to be awful. You can be awful at that first blog, that first post, that first podcast, that first sentence, paragraph, whatever, but you will get better. But typically we don't give ourselves permission to be awful at the beginning, to even give ourselves a chance to be great at the end. When you pra- you've been practicing courage, yeah. right, for at least two, maybe three decades, was consciously practicing courage, consciously not allowing yourself to be 
controlled by fear? Have you gotten to a place where it doesn't even feel courageous anymore because it's so normalized? Or do you still feel those doubts that have to be overcome that you have to like press through? I, I think anyone, if they're honest, always has to press through. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you hear about even great actors, you know, great, you know, singers, you know, entertainers, you know, they still, you know, throw up right before they go on stage or, you know, big basketball game, the NBA finals or, uh, yeah. So I think I've gotten more confident, uh, but I still have to face that courage uh, to push myself and be out there because we live in a world where it's easier, it's just easier to conform right? And business, I mean, the creative arts allows it more, but, but typical business or, you know, consulting, you know, um, you know, it's, it's just, how do we take a product and make it slightly better, not blow it up, not reinvent it, not reimagine it, not amplify it, not enliven it, not add entertainment to it, just tweak it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, especially if you're a publicly traded company and you tweak things enough and they're marginally better over time, People are happy. You don't lose your job. Things are okay. And that, that becomes a status quo. And then you get a renegade underdog, you know, startup that's willing to break the rules, look at it differently. Um, you come with fresh ideas and perspectives. And it's the classic, you know, Clayton Christensen, the innovator's dilemma that big companies fail because small startups are willing to break the rules and do it different. Take bigger risks. Take bigger risks. Have more courage. Exactly. I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is, do you look back at things that you had to push through that felt at the time like big, courageous risks that today you might not even feel risk about or, or not feel like you need to have courage about? Because, because when you flex these muscles, right. over time the muscles get to where they, they have so much more strength. Right. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, and I and I think in certain areas, right? Like I, I feel like I've become courageous, or I I don't think about as much. You could drop me in the middle of any country, anywhere, any continent, I'd be totally fine. I don't need a watch. I don't need a wallet. I could still figure it out, right? Like I feel so confident in that where I feel that would be you know maybe very risky for 99% of the population. But you drop me into other scenarios where you know it's. Um, you know, I, there's probably a million of them, you know, when it comes to like, you know, the physical, you know, running, working out, jogging, I, I don't know how to do any of that stuff, right? Like I'd have to start from the very beginning and that's overwhelming or scary or, you know, that, to me. But, but there are these, these niche areas where I feel like, yeah, I'm pretty good. Like I, I flex that muscle, it no longer scares me. I can do that stuff now. When you, when you think back to like whatever your first business was, which you could tell me if you want, but how much money was at risk in your first business versus how much money is at risk in your latest big venture? And how, and how different does that feel? You know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's a caveat because my first business was, I lived in Africa, came back and started a charity. So it was a nonprofit, mm. but you know, and, and I'm happy to say that was 20 years ago. This is our 20 year anniversary of that still. It still exists. exists. Still exi What's that called? So Hero for Children. So I've started three companies, all still exist. And I'm, that's what I'm most proud of because they, they continue on, you know, without me as I've moved on and put people in place. So went from charity to an international travel company to a consulting company. Consulting company is the latest one. 
you know, it's, it's a thousand X, right? Mm -hmm. What the first company was, you know, we have major, you know, clients, uh, you know, we do you know, strategy, innovation, and leadership training. I mean, Chick-fil-A is one of our biggest clients. So mm-hmm. they, when we started, they were a $4 billion company. They're now a $14 billion company. That's amazing. You can't mess that up, right? Yeah. Like you gotta, but what you can do is you can put people in place that are better suited for what they now need and want, but you can tinker on the sides. I think that's what I'm best at is, is how do you look at something from a completely different angle? Because Chick-fil-A's next breakthrough you know, eventually they're going to go international, right? They're already starting with it. I think they are. I think they're in the process. And, and they're already, you know, grounded and and known uh, and by their even mission, you know, to be the most caring company in the world. What does that look like? Care can look like a lot of things, but typically what hires, not just Chick-fil-A, but any company looks at it from a certain perspective, plays within a, a box. So put the right people in that box, but you need people looking at a different box of what that could look like in the future. And, I, and I've been smart enough through all my companies to, when I'm no longer the right person in the box, move on. Mm-hmm. Put someone mm-hmm. else better, smarter, wiser that fits in that role and, and move on and allow yourself to continue to be creative. But those, those companies haven't required a lot of capital risk, right? In the sense that the, the, the nonprofit, you were raising money. Correct. The travel company was service driven, service. right? So you're getting right, and the consulting company is largely service driven, right? You're providing services for fees. So I didn't think about that. Like the 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 stuff that I did is all required like big capital risks. You've taken big like social risks and right. um, different kinds of. It's a different style of risk. What do you think the biggest risk, like when you're starting a consulting company, like what were the big, what, 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 what felt like the 10 seconds of insane courage in starting a consulting company? What were the biggest doubts and fears? Yeah. Are you smart enough to be the right answer to something that a company, a billion, a $4 billion company, they have all the resources. Why you, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it goes back to, you know, are you the right person? The, the fears that come up, the courage that it takes to mm-hmm. overcome it. But it was like, Maybe you are the right person because they tend to hire what they know, right? So what if you're the thing that they don't know? Mm-hmm. And, and how do you always position yourself as the, I mean, it's the blue ocean strategy, right? Like compete in a place where no one else is competing, right? You don't want to compete in the bloody red waters. You want to compete in a blue ocean where no one else is doing what you do. And you want to hunt <clears throat> in fertile hunting grounds if you're an orca. Ex- right, exactly. Right. And so that's, you know, that idea is easy to understand, hard to execute. But when you are the guy that says, hey, you know, you could hire a hundred people to do leadership training, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, their stories, resources, and, and what they understand and know is gonna be far different from someone younger, international, that's talking about the underwater post office and what that could do for you know, tourism and, <clears throat> and, and people, right? Uh, so all, all these unique differentiated examples, I, I've just always said, how do I leverage what I've learned and do it in the service of others? Um, and in this case, it's consulting, but in a broader sense, you know, I'll tell you, it, it is a struggle. Like, what do you do with all this, right? I, you know, like, where do you play? How do you, you know, continue to serve um, now that I'm done with 197? I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a million dollar question, right? Well, I, what I wonder is, um, you know, for somebody like you, that even though you express doubt and even though you psychologically identify your own you know, weaknesses or fears, still taking risk for you is fun. 
Correct. Right. Take, going on adventures for you is fun. So, you know, part of 10 seconds of insane courage is a license to ill, right? <laughs> yes. Right. And some, for you, like for somebody like you, you're like, we're like, I don't know, let's just do it. And, and so if you can culturally make that normalized, then it makes your life more fun, which is actually what you want. So what I wonder psychologically is, is stability actually a true fear, right? Is stability actually the opposite of what it is that you want to indulge in, right? So, so you may be getting to something because I crave the opposite of stability. Correct. Whereas that makes me certainly an outlier, mm-hmm. uh, just human nature. Stability is what we, you know, seek and crave. The majority of people, majority I'd say the majority of people, people love a, 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 an aspect of stability. Right. Whereas you are the opposite. Correct. Which probably, this is where this interview is going really well. Uh, you, you understand it. I seek the opposite. Therefore I create opportunities that create the opposite effect. I, I get myself in these situations that then by virtue of doing those allow me to learn things that allow me to stay in that you know, creative, unique, you know, mind altering, you know, world where there, there is no stability, but the, but the anti-stability creates opportunities for these anti-brands, these anti, of course, you know, you know opportunities. Yeah. Of course. But when I'm, when I, and, and the reason I'm asking this is yeah. that I, I have some of this element, right. That we're one of the places where we have always been, you know, good friends connected deeply is that we both love adventure. Yep. We love the new, we, we love exploration. We love learning. Um, we love the chaos of the unknown. Um, we love trying to sort through that chaos and we have special skills to sort through that chaos in the ways that most people don't, right? Most people do not love the madness of entrepreneurial life, uh, the unknown of that kind of adventure. But, and the thing that, uh, that I know is a struggle for me that I'm always trying to like work through, which, which is what I'm really asking you too, is what element of stability takes courage that we don't like, right? What, what are the, what are the good things about stability that for whatever psychological reasons we don't delight in and how does that play into the courage? So, so for people that love adventure is stability, the thing that takes courage. hundred percent. And, and I, I forced myself for my resolution was to go through Ryan Holiday's book, the Stoics. So 365 meditations from the Stoics. And what they say is, as Bore, an adventurer, boring, boring, <laughs> boring. I, it's, I, it's I can't one stand the stoic. It's okay. No. But, but at the end of the day, what, what they would what they would push back on you and saying is, as an adventurer, mm. all you're doing is running. You refuse to sit and face what you need to sit and face. Now, is that true? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you know, they they would argue that you know, at the end of the day, it's all feelings. What is the truth? The truth is, you are you doing adventure because you're running. Are you doing it because you don't want to face something? Are you, are you, do you not like stability because there's something there you haven't gotten to the core of and, and really dug down deep and, or you don't believe in, or you don't believe in. Um, so, you know, I, I question myself that, you know, it's, I love it so much, but, but why? And then what's the opposite that I'm missing? Like what is missing 
from the stability that I can also learn. Because otherwise you're just an egomaniac, right? Like certainly you can learn from both sides. I, I just, well, I don't are know. Are you an egomaniac? I mean, you well, might if, be an egomaniac. If you think you can't learn from the other. A hundred percent. That's all right, I'm saying. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. If you think you have can you, learn. Have you solved any of that? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I know. I, I'm trying, I'm learning, I'm reading, I'm listening, I'm talking. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm open, like, you know, I, I want to understand, you know, the, the, the benefits of both. Because uh, you'd be a fool not to, right? There's so many wise people that they get a lot from each. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've studied a, a ton of Stoicism. Yeah. A lot of Buddhism. I've used... Uh, many Buddhist spiritual exercises throughout my life. Um, and I've done a lot of like stoic reflection, but it's, a, it's, it's really boring. Yeah. Like for me, like emotionally, I don't resonate with it. Like there's not, there's not enough fire to it. There's too much like acceptance. Yeah. Um, and it, and it feels contrary to my nature because my nature, I, I'm in a football analogy. I'm an offensive player, right? I'm, I'm terrible at defense. Like, I don't want to think about how to stop right. offense. I want to think about how to score touchdowns. Yeah. And you're five wide and you're just yeah. throwing Hail Mary's down every single time. And, Not yeah. a Hail Mary. I'm throwing it. Yeah. 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 You're a great <laughs> offensive coordinator that's going uh, to run up the score. Yes. Yeah. And it, we're going to 55, 50 and you're okay with that. hundred percent. Let's roll. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm going to outscore you. Right. 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 That's, that's, that's my mentality. And so that delight right. doesn't apply. The defense feels like, like I'm, I'm like almost anti-life. Yeah. And, and for me, and you're right, I just say for this one year, could I do a page a day for a year? Yeah, of course I could. It takes me you know, one minute in the morning to read like, you know, Saban won championships off defense for years. I'm not a Saban guy. No. I hate the, when they, when it was nine to three in the national championship, Alabama LSU, most boring game I've ever seen in my entire yeah. life. Like give me USC, Texas, Vince Young. 100%. And Matt, Pete Carroll. Yeah, Pete Carroll. Give me those kind of plays, those kind of games all day long. Sean Payton. It's what I'm drawn to, right? Uh -huh. It's what I'm drawn to, just like you. It's why we get along. Uh -huh. <laughs> but there's something about Saban that as, as boring as a game as he draws up, that works as well. So all I'm saying is, is there something I can learn from that? Of course there's something. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. When, when you're reading this stuff, what, what are you finding comes up for you emotionally when you're reading the stoic morning meditation? Yeah, I, I think it's just that no events, there, there's no feelings attached to anything. We create the feelings, right? We create the feeling good. We create the feeling bad. Well, that's all, that's stoic, that's stoic philosophically. But what I'm talking about is you still have emotions. Oh, 100%. Right. So how you, how do you emotionally respond when the stoics try to lay this out and say, Garrett, yeah, leave the, the, leave the passion, <laughs> yeah. leave the passion aside. I feel Accept your reality. Yeah, it's boring. Like, get a job. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, but, but uh, no, again, I'm, I'm trying to come open-handed. I'm trying to come open-handed to it. It doesn't come naturally to me. That's not the way I think. Mm -hmm. That's not the way I live. That's not even really what I believe. But I'm trying to say there's probably something to learn here. There's probably something to learn. There's a human, there's an intellectual humility. You're approaching it. You're approaching it with openness. But emotionally, sometimes, yeah, it's, it doesn't it doesn't land. Yeah. Okay. So then, what are you doing? What are you doing right now to feed um, the other side that is like the pure emotion and the delight of adventure? Yeah. What, what's the next big adventure? I would love to. I would love to figure that out. Like I'm I'm best at strategy and marketing. Mm -hmm. I love that to my core. 
but I, I'm looking, to be honest, I'm, I'm open. And I told myself, you know, 2023 is going to be an interesting year. Where I land a year from now, whether it's, you know, working with you know, an individual, a brand, I just want to work with A players that are willing to disrupt, um, that are game changers in an industry. And that industry could be hospitality and tourism, because I know that like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. I love, you know, hotels and, and nightlife. I love that. But uh, but my background is in you know marketing strategy um, and just driving revenue. So where does that all come together in the middle of the dartboard? I don't know. Um, and, and, you know, it, it took me 21 years to do 197, and I just finished. And so, what do you do with all that? Talk about staying the course. I mean, it, it was it, it was not easy. It was, it was uh, an interesting, you know, there are so many times I wanted to quit. But I was going to ask that. I mean, 100%, yeah. I mean, you look at Africa, there's 54 countries on the continent. You split it in half, 27, 27. 27 on the East Coast are easy. I mean, you, you literally can go from Kenya to Cape Town and, you know, knock out all those, um, you know, with your best friend. You want to do the other 27? I had to get a buddy who kind of said, hey, you've made this a goal. These are basically the hard ones. You get through this, you're at the finish line. But these are tough. And, and a friend said, if it's so tough, I'll go with you. And my buddy is Trey Humphreys. He was the Atlanta Falcons mascot. He created the fur bus. He's a, a fun guy. And he's about the only guy I know that would have said, I'll go with you and make this dream possible. And to that point, if a lesson was to be learned, it's nothing happens by yourself, obviously. I mean, and, and to the extreme, when you get really, really close to a goal, that's when you really, really find out who's really in your corner. Because he just said, hey, I want to see this as much as you want to do it. And I will jump on that plane. I'll get in that car. I'll drive through those countries. I'll fly into those crazy airports. And we did. We packed during Christmas two years ago, two Santa Claus suits. (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) Of course we did. And we got a whole bunch of gifts and a whole bunch of toys. And we're like, this is either going to totally work. We're going to end up in jail. And uh, we flew to Sierra Leone, uh, you know, where they filmed Blood Diamond. And we went overland in a car through 10 countries, Sierra Leone to Senegal in Santa Claus suits, passing out stuff to all the kids. We're like, you know, and the locals just thought it was hilarious. They loved it. Even the border patrol where normally it's bribe, bribe, bribe. They're like, you guys are crazy. Keep going. Like, we wish you the best of luck. It was probably the best thing I could have done was uh, dressed up in a Santa Claus suit going across West Africa during <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> See, now for you, was it having a friend to make it fun? Yeah, 100%. That's, that was really the key because otherwise those countries are a little bit boring. Is that the a little bit boring. Just boring and dangerous? Yeah, yeah. You know, so if you go in pairs, then you can reduce the danger, right. but more importantly, increase the fun. Yeah, and the levity, the fun, the, you know, add a sense of adventure to it for sure. Yeah, because I, there's, I, I wonder if those countries you're grinding out, yeah. you're grinding out because they're, they're not that enjoyable yeah. sometimes. And, yeah, and there, there's not a lot to do, not mm-hmm. a ton to see, um, but, you know, a goal's a goal, so you got to get through all of them. If if somebody let's say a twenty year old came to you and said I want to go to every country, what would be like your you know couple pieces of advice? Would you be willing to push your traditional life back ten years? And if you are, you can do it because typically at thirty, you know you may uh, go from an apartment to a house. You know you may go from a car to a new car. You may get married. You may have kids. You may do all these things. And and if you're willing to push all that ten years. You could take all that money and go do it. 
you would have enough money to do it. It's probably a thousand dollars a country. People always ask, how much does it cost to go to every country in the That's world? That's it, a thousand dollars a country on average. On average, on average, yeah. So you to know, get there, yeah, because you you got to consider it's flights, hotels, yeah, visas, visas rack up across Africa. I know a thousand countries. feels low. Yeah, but but you can do it for that, and it's not it's not too much, and you could. I mean, a hundred percent you could do it, but again, you don't 200 grand, you think for two, so 200, somebody had 200 grand over the course of 20 years, the course of 20 years, right. You could easily do it. Now, if you're 10,000 a year, 10,000 a year that you you put away. Yep. So thousand dollars a month, you could do it. And, and how do you put away 200 grand over 20 years? Well, are you willing to push your traditional life back 10 years to, to kind of take that money and then, and then do it later. And, and anyone could do it. Anyone can do it because you would, you'd have the money, you'd have the flexibility. You're not trying to knock it out in two years. You could do it over 20. But you uh, do it in chunks. You do it in chunks, yeah. And, and you know, I, I went to Africa, I think, you know, 11 times to do 54 countries, so about five countries a time. And uh, you just do pockets. But how much does it cost to fly to Africa? I mean, probably $2,500. But once you're there, then, you know, you can go Kenya uh, to Cape Town, 10 countries for right. cheap, right? Right, 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 right. So ten, yeah, if you could bang out ten cars, so you get twenty five hundred dollars in flight, seventy five hundred dollars to stay, travel. Yep. Okay. I mean, best to do some of these things when you're young and you like a backpack. Right. It, but again, I started at twenty one, finished at forty two. Yeah. So it took me twenty one years to do it. Most luxurious countries in the world. If you had a, like, if you thought of like yeah. your most luxurious experiences. So probably, you know, the islands, right? So the Maldives, the Seychelles. So the Seychelles is off the coast of uh, South Africa uh, where I think um, William and Kate uh, did their honeymoon. Uh, I mean, Dubai is about as ridiculous as it gets on the high end. Uh, I think Saudi's going to compete. Saudi Arabia is going to now compete. They're pouring so much money into sports, tourism, and entertainment. Um, so everything from live golf to the WWE, or if they're going to end up buying that, they just, you know, signed you know, Ronaldo, they're going to bring Messi. Uh, but the tourism aspect, they're going to, I think they'll supplant Dubai probably in the next 10 years. They have this vision 2030, uh, and they are just dumping money into tourism. So the high end of Saudi Arabia is, is insane. Um, I mean, I think you can find high end, uh, in some of the best places in Europe. I mean, my favorite top to bottom, Italy. I mean, you go from Lake Como where George Clooney has a place and everybody else, which is probably the most beautiful place on the planet, all the way down to the Amalfi Coast. Um, you know, th- there's just some absolutely stunning places in Europe. So old, so majestic, so, so beautiful. beautiful. What a great place to be rich. Yeah, I wish, knock on wood one day. <laughs> Not a great place to be an entrepreneur. Correct. <laughs> there are very few places in the world. I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of entrepreneurial activity in in Africa, right. some of which is, you know, war, warlord-like, mm-hmm. right? Because there's not as many rules. And so there's a lot of, you know, might makes right kind of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, but there aren't very many places in the world where it's, got an ecosystem made for entrepreneurs. Yeah, and, and you typically find that in pockets, right? So funny enough, my favorite city in the world is Cape Town, South Africa. Favorite city in the whole favorite world. Favorite city in the whole world. You could drop me in one place right now, it'd be Cape Town. So come on. Yeah, it's uh but I mean think about it. So it's it's on it's safe. There's sunshine pretty much throughout the entire year. There's a mountain in the middle of it. 
on one side, you have kind of a Miami South Beach area. It's called like Camps Bay. And the other side is like a Charleston, South Carolina, very charming. But you have a safari that you can go on. Wine vineyards, in my opinion, better than Napa Valley. You can go shark cage diving, outdoor adventures, all in one city, and it's safe. And and we're the, you know, as an American, you know, uh, the US dollar compared to the South African Rand, I mean, your money just goes so far there. And it's just so adventurous, so fun. The people are fantastic. The city, if I had one city you could go to. Cape Town. Cape Town, South Africa. Have you been shark diving? I have, yeah. Great whites? Great whites. They throw the chum right over the cage. And then as the sharks come to see it, they yank the chum into your cage and the sharks then come at it and smash into your cage. There's only one rule. When you jump in the cage, your tendency is to be take your hands and grab yeah, the rails. Yeah, you do not do that. That's the only thing you do. Yeah, you do not want your hands on the outside. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. oops, lost my hands. Exactly. But uh, yeah, shark cage diving in South Africa, probably one of the top five biggest, craziest bucket list things I've ever done. And the sharks are there just all the time. Like they just know exactly where to go. They know, hey, at, you know, 10, 2, and 4 o'clock, that's our feeding times. Let's go and see the tourists. Do you, do you think that like the, the, the guys who are running those, are they seeing the same sharks all the 100%. time? 100%. They probably know like that's, you know, Jim, Fred, and Harry. That's the, you know, yeah, they, they, they have to at this point. Um, I'm, I'm actually really surprised, Cape Town. I'm, I'm now intrigued. I've never been to South Africa. So... That uh, increases my desire to maybe see it. That you would think of it as one of the maybe your favorite country in the or favorite city in the whole world. Favorite city in the whole world, absolutely. Favorite city in Europe. Favorite city in Europe. Uh, I would probably say anywhere in the in southern Italy. So you know, Posit- uh, the Amalfi Coast, basically. Mm-hmm. So you know, Positano. Um, you know, then you pop over to Capri. I mean, that that area is just so charming, so beautiful. Like, you know. Yeah, just an Aperol spritz in southern Italy. I mean, is there anything better than that in the summer? Okay, so a guy who's traveled to every country in the world maintains his residence in Atlanta. Tell me some of the great things about Atlanta compared to everywhere you've seen in the world. What what keeps you here? Yeah, one, we have a huge airport, so you can get anywhere, anytime, as soon as possible. I love sports. I mean, I'm a sports guy through and through. Uh, You know, the Atlanta Braves, we finally brought home a championship. I went to the University of Georgia, so the dogs... But I, I love sports and entertainment. I mean, entertainment is coming to Atlanta in droves, right? You know, we've got you know all the you know, production and the movies and the television. But then, like Atlanta's, I mean, we, we got rappers and ball players. We got the be, you know fun sports, amazing restaurants. I feel like Atlanta's like a cultural capital of the U.S. Hmm. I really do. Um, and you know, we may you know it's interesting because as I go around the world. Everyone from outside the U.S. knows L.A., New York, L.A., New York, L.A., New York. But I feel like Atlanta is getting some of that. We, we've got the swagger, right? We've got the swagger, but, but we're also, we're bringing a lot of that talent and I think a lot of that production. Mm. Um, and if we could just, you know, get the Falcons and get the Hawks to be a little <laughs> bit better, <laughs> uh, then, then we'll, we'll be doing okay on the, on the sports side as well. I mean, listen, it's a golden age for the, you know, dog nation. Oh, and as I got, so I, I went to UGA, I was our student body president. I only won because I promised the entire 30,000 population student body that I do a push up for every vote that I won by. So it was the greatest gimmick, I think, in college politics history. No one cared <laughs> how about- many, How many pushups was that? Thank God, UGA, you know, in a 150 something year history, it was the closest student government election 
ever. I won by 58 votes in a school of 30,000. Thank God for the mail-ins. Thank God for the mail-ins. <laughs> like keep counting those votes at 2 a.m. <laughs> uh, Wait, so how many votes, how many push-ups do you have to do? So literally, so we won by 58. So I only, I promised oh, oh, the margin you, that oh, I won Oh, you would by. do push-ups yeah. by the margin. Yeah. Oh, that was smart. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was imagining no, no, like no, a, I, a whole push-up campaign that was going to last weeks. Yeah, 10,000 push-ups would take me forever, but mm. uh, 58. But no, so yeah, great. The, do- the dogs back-to-back national champs, uh, which is just so exciting. All right. We're out of time, unfortunately, but, uh, we might do this again. Yeah. Listen, uh, travel, travel as much as you can travel as far as you can. It's the, uh, Anthony Bourdain, you know, quote, who is a, just a legend in his own right. Of course. If we could be uh, a little bit like him, uh, a little bit nicer, a little bit kinder and, and just see people and see places and enjoy it for all that it is. That's ultimately what it's all about. Mm. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks so much. This has been the Black Hall Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>